0: Hello and welcome to Serverless Transformation, a podcast dedicated to all things serverless. Today we have my interview with James Bezick, an AWS Developer Advocate for Serverless. Hello and welcome to Serverless Transformation. My name is Ben Ellaby and today I'm joined by James Bezick, a Developer Advocate for Serverless at AWS. James, do you want to give a bit more of an introduction about yourself?
1: Hi Ben, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm a developer advocate with the AWS serverless team. So it's my job basically to help people learn the benefits of serverless and get any feedback from customers and developers back to the Lambda team.
0: Great. And I think we met first for the first time in person in uh, Berlin at the GoTo conference last year. And since yeah. then...
1: Yeah, it's great to meet you there. I remember meeting you and we were chatting about, um, I think you were working on PHP at the time, but since then you've done such an amazing job of building out serverless in the community with all the different tools and libraries you've been doing.
0: Yeah, and I think I see you at every uh, serverless days around the globe, so I think you're, uh, you're doing well at uh, collecting every t-shirt.
1: Yeah, it, it definitely has uh, been to quite a few events, but it's amazing to see how fast all of the different serverless days have grown. I think it speaks to the growth throughout communities throughout the world.
0: Yeah, it's something I was talking to um, Emera from Thundra about earlier today. And just, yes, the technology has got to the maturity, but the community is also getting to the maturity. I mean, it's always been a friendly community, but it's growing at a massive rate.
1: Yeah, and I think think one of the challenges is because this is an area where we're still discovering all the best patterns and practices, a lot of people, when they're coming to this, they're finding that their local community is a great first place to find support and guidance. And there's so many people out there who are heroes and just doing things above and beyond their jobs to help communicate that to developers. I think that's one of the reasons why these days have taken off so well.
0: Yeah, and uh, there's some great organization going behind them. Um, I guess that's an interesting place to start our conversation. So we're talking about how people get into serverless. Um, I guess it's interesting to ask, how did you first discover serverless? Uh, I guess it's before you were at AWS.
1: Yeah, before I was at AWS, I had a company that built applications for startups. And we worked with funded startups to produce their MVPs and their first round of applications. So in the first three years of our business, we did something like 30 large projects. And what was happening is we were just getting killed by the amount of maintenance for EC2 instances and just you know patching and maintaining things that had essentially been paid for, we had to keep um, running. So I discovered this by accident through serverless conf a couple of years ago through the A Cloud Guru people. And it really opened my eyes to what was possible in terms of just building things that you could build once, not need to maintain forever. So I I then started down the road of trying to train my development teams and the the groups I was working with. And I've been doing that for a while. And then, of course, I a Chris Munns and the serverless team here, and it turned out AWS was wanting to expand how they were training developers. So that's how I ended up moving from my company over to AWS.
0: So I guess you see a range of uh, companies adopting serverless. You see the startups, but you also see the large enterprises. What's the difference in adoption that you see?
1: Yeah, it's definitely a, a good blend of companies across lots of different industries and different sizes. And on, on the very large end, you see the very, very largest customers. I mean running absolutely millions of invocations a day and really using all of our services to the max. And they're really trying to figure out the best ways to quickly port over applications from both legacy systems and other on-cloud systems to try and move them as quickly as possible. And then you look at the startup space where they're seeing the benefits from the point of view of how can you build MVPs and experiments quickly without committing infrastructure and time. And so in the, in the startup space, they're really looking at the opportunity in a way of building things as quickly as possible. And then if they scale up, uh, then we, you know, AWS and the serverless infrastructure handles that for them. But, the, but although they're all coming at this from different angles, I'd say that they're both approaching it at the same speed, that there's a fairly equal distribution between enterprise customers and startups.
0: I think the, the content you've been producing recently in the S3 to Lambda series has really focused on some of those more enterprise use cases. Is the is the goal behind that to sort of have these sort of drop in patterns for developers to use in their own enterprise architectures? Or what is the the motivation behind that?
1: Yeah, at at reInvent last year, I gave a chalk talk on how to integrate S3 plus a serverless service as a core of a serverless application. And I had a lot of good feedback from people. Many people just didn't know that you could connect services this way. And so I expanded that chalk talk into this series of posts where I show how you can use services like DynamoDB or Step Functions or EventBridge and use S3 as the starting point. And I suppose the common theme throughout this is really that you're using S3 as the scaling point. When the data arrives, the event that happens, you're only writing the business logic for that one event. But whether it works for one object in S3 or a million objects in S3, you let the serverless infrastructure handle the scaling. So I'm taking advantage of the fact that I think this is a fairly new idea for lots of customers, but also on the enterprise side, I know developers there really need the assistance with scaling their applications.
0: An event bridge, I think, is the really interesting... Um a really interesting service that's been released. And I think a lot of the service community are behind it. Um, And I myself has written a bit about it, but I think you've also been sort of leading the content around EventBridge. What is it about EventBridge that excites you so much?
1: Yeah, I love EventBridge. It's really a very interesting story because although the service itself is an evolution from CloudWatch events, and it was launched last year at the um, New York Summit, what the team there has done is really quite interesting because it firstly bridges connections with SaaS partners. So if you've got people like Datadog and Auth0 who are sending events, you can do that through EventBridge instead of going over the public internet. And I think there are some interesting things you can solve with this, like building scalable webhooks or just making it easy to ingest events and not have to deal with batch processes. And if you look at the way EventBridge is built, it's really very simple to use. You're just creating rules on a bus and allowing that to, in, to invoke your Lambda functions or other downstream services. So I look at it you know, really like Lego bricks, where you need to see how you can assemble these services to get the best outcome. And so I've written a lot of things that really show how EventBridge is the way to glue all these things together. But I don't know if you necessarily, when you first see the service, you'd, you'd realize that's what it can do.
0: Yeah, at CDO, which is uh, where I work, we do a lot of serverless architectures, and more and more we're sort of almost calling it EventBridge-driven. So starting with a good event bridge and a good understanding of our domain events and then creating our microservices around that. So for us, it's really sort of forming the main sort of artery of events in our system. And the tooling around it, um, it's really interesting as it stands at the moment with the event bridge schema registry. Um, What are your thoughts about how that might develop in the future?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, when I think about events in the past, one of the couple of the big problems with managing events for large scale systems was always how do you keep track of what the event schema is like? You know, the format of events starts to become problematic, and the second was the single point of failure problem of having a single event bus in an application. So the scaling problems really, ver- really solved because you know EventBridge is a serverless service that handles trillions of events per month. So the scaling is, is just massive, and then the schema registry side of it helps you keep track of the automating the fact you've got different developers building different schemas. So the way I see it developing in the future is really the same way we develop most things at AWS, is as customers start to use this and they have requests of things they want to see, we receive those requests and get them onto the product mo- roadmap and find ways of developing them as quickly as possible. There's certainly a lot of the requests we've seen from customers so far. People have really adopted this schema registry idea very rapidly, and there's lots of requests in terms of greater integration with more services, more IDEs, and just generally making it easier for developers.
0: And another service, I think, which, which is in a similar vein and something we've both uh, been excited about writing content about is uh, step functions. Mm-hmm. Um, so step functions allow us to create these workflows. And we've recently been working with a client, um, actually a large government, to help build a rapidly a system for them. And the whole system is basically step functions. And the team has been able to build a massively scalable architecture extremely quickly. Are there some interesting use cases of step functions that you can maybe talk to?
1: Yeah, yeah, Step Functions, I think, is one of those services that is underused by most groups who are using serverless designs. And some of that is because, you know, we try to use Lambda for everything. But I think Lambda is more of the glue between services. And for many business workflows, Step Functions is the way to go. So I see it where you have complex business workflows, especially ones that change arbitrarily, which, you know, lots of business workflows do, and modeling them in code tends to be messy. You think about things like e-commerce platforms where orders can get canceled or credit cards can fail. If you model all that kind of stuff in code at scale, it gets very complicated very quickly, whereas step functions in those kinds of use cases is really a drop-in solution. It's very simple to model even very complicated workflows and especially ones that change because you can keep track of existing workflows that are in flight versus new workflows. So really, you know, I tend to say to people, if you're looking at workflows where they're sub one second and they don't need any real complexity, then maybe doing it in Lambda is fine. But very quickly, once you get beyond that, you've got two choices between um, step functions express workflows, which is cheaper and faster than regular step functions. And also then regular step functions give you a greater a range of functionality and flexibility. But I see an increasing number of different use cases that can really use that.
0: When we're talking about these different services, um, I think we, me and you are, are probably both looking at it more through the lens of serverless-first architectures. Mm-hmm. Um, so not ne- necessarily uh, having those sort of say, legacy components or non-serverless components Inside of architectures, but thinking about when we can do like a a greenfield, completely serverless first architecture. Is that a pattern that you're seeing more and more as the barriers to to entry of serverless go down, or are you still seeing the sort of hybrid approach quite often?
1: It's really a mixture of different things. You know, with startups. Startups often have the luxury of starting from Greenfield and so can design things very cleanly. But most existing companies are bringing some form of existing architecture with them. And it can be something really simple, like if you've got a website, you're using WordPress and you're trying to get off of that and use the serverless piece for parts of the functionality. Or it can be more complex things where you're integrating with relational databases or other systems. So the good news with this is that it's not... there's there's no real purity around the model. You know, if you want to use a hybrid solution, it's it's very easy. But I think once people start getting into it, they start realizing that they want to try and renovate more and more of their infrastructure. And that's where people start then thinking about these greenfield solutions from scratch.
0: And I think you can really, from my perspective, get the the amazing developer experience when you start doing those serverless-first architectures. I think you sort of start doing... A hybrid approach, you get the glimmer of what it could be like doing completely serverless first, and then it's a case of migration. But yeah, there's the startups that are blessed with that. <laughs> yeah.
1: And yeah, my, my background, um, before I did all of this, I was a software developer for a long time and a product manager for quite a few years. And generally, what I've seen with software over time is that you get requirements changing without much notice and things end up becoming different to how you planned up front. And you know, if we've gone through a period where we blamed the requirements gathering process, or we blamed Agile, we blamed the teams, the reality is that business requirements just change very quickly. And so I think one of the greatest things of serverless is that we just accept that. We build build what we know is right now, and then as requirements change, we can then update the infrastructure. And this sort of approach really supports that.
0: I definitely agree. And when we talk about developers adopting serverless, I think one of the classic uh, one of the classic first questions people ask me is how do I choose between the different frameworks? There's obviously the serverless framework, which is very uh, well established, and AWS SAM is becoming increasingly popular. How do you advise people about how they choose their framework when it talks of, when we talk about the infrastructure as code for serverless?
1: The most important thing is that you choose a framework, because you can do all of these things manually in the console, and you you can manually make all the different parts of the infrastructure work, and that's fine for when you're learning and experimenting, but very quickly, when you start deploying things in production, you need the automation behind it to make sure everything's reliable and consistent, and so frameworks really help you do that. Um, I've used both serverless framework and SAM, and I think they're both excellent and really um, if you're using one already, there probably isn't a compelling reason to switch. But, you know, really that choice comes down to SAM is something that works exclusively within the AWS space, Where a serverless framework has a big plug-in library and, and all sorts of other features. But once you've found one and it works for your team, if it works, really just keep using it. You know, there's also a CDK as well, which I see a large number of people starting to use as well. And some people prefer that approach where they can define their infrastructure and code. But, you know, really, if you've got to a point where you've got a flow that works for you and your team, that's great. Just keep using it.
0: I agree completely. And have you seen how serverless components might fit into this landscape?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, fundamentally, in some respects, things don't change that much. But it's it's really about getting into smaller and smaller pieces again. And I think, you know, for a long time with serverless, we've talked about breaking down the monolith. And then you find as your serverless applications get larger, it's very it's easy to trend back towards monolithic sizes, regardless of how you, you know, you're using a framework. And so, getting back into pieces where you can build things that are smaller, more maintainable across teams, I think generally is better for larger application infrastructures.
0: And maybe that's the uh, the combination between EventBridge and serverless components could be quite a nice one, in the yeah. sense that it is just putting those Lego blocks in the right places.
1: Yeah, that's something I really like EventBridge for actually, because if you look at the way that SAM in particular works, you know, a lot of this requires you to build infrastructure with your code at the same time. So if you're trying to attach something like a, a Lambda function to an S3 bucket, you really have to do it within the same template most of the time. And so by injecting EventBridge in the middle, it actually makes it very easy to separate these into separate microservices and applications where genuinely teams don't need to know about the consumers of their services. So I think you know, as, as serverless applications have become bigger, this has become an important thing for us to fix. And EventBridge and you know, these serverless components, it goes a long way to helping us break these down into smaller pieces again.
0: And as we talk about these different services and these different tools, another question that often comes up is, but does this work for my application? Uh, could you speak to maybe um, which applications are suitable for serverless and which maybe are not, or if it's a case of whether everything is suitable for a serverless architecture?
1: Definitely not everything is suitable for serverless. You know, if you think about um, even within Amazon, you know we've got factories with robots that are moving um, you know, shelving around, and fundamentally in those distribution centers, those work on microsecond systems. So a serverless environment isn't going to be the right solution there. Or if you think about something like uh, video games, where you've got you know, sub-millisecond streaming and games reacting at that speed, that's not the sort of environment where serverless is going to help you much. But when you also look at most applications, they have all sorts of other features from user administration to infrastructure management and supporting chatbots and all sorts of other things. And so I've tended to find that even in applications that aren't necessarily a good fit for serverless, there's always some part of the application that is a good fit for serverless. Now, that being said, um, there are enormous numbers of applications that are a perfect fit, because if you look in the enterprise especially... There's a large number of asynchronous jobs. And whenever you hear async, generally that's going to be a fit for serverless. And then when we look across our customers, we see pretty much anybody who's got any form of web app or mobile app can make heavy use of serverless and for data processing, chatbots, and IT automation. So there is this small percentage. And, you know, like any tool, you don't want to say that this this is a fit for everything. But one of the interesting things I still think is amazing is that because you start to break up the, up the applications, there tends to be a fit for it somewhere even in those cases.
0: And one thing we've not spoken about yet is the, the data storage side. I when mean, we spoke about S3, but in terms of databases, uh, DynamoDB is obviously, you know, the, the poster child for a serverless database. Um, but I think it's the area where people have most difficulty getting started. Mm-hmm. Is that a pattern that you've seen yourself?
1: Definitely, because DynamoDB really offers this revolutionary way of looking at your data. And it's It's beguilingly simple when you look at it, because on the surface it's like, oh, it's just it's just storing key value pairs. But that's not really doing that at all. And you know, DynamoDB is not particularly flexible, it's just very powerful and very fast. So you know Rick Houlihan has these great videos that explain how you can approach it. And he talks about how you can use understanding your data access patterns is really the key to getting DynamoDB performing the way you want. And so there's a bit of a learning curve with DynamoDB and understanding how it fits into your application. And then we find once people go through that learning curve, they realize that nothing else can touch it. I mean, the performance is absolutely crazy. And so another learning curve I see is that, you know, we're used to coming from applications where you choose one type of database. You know, certainly in the background I've had, you latch onto an RDS or a relational database of some type and that becomes the center of your application. And in this new serverless world, you're welcome to have as many types of databases as, as you need. So it's very easy to use S3, and DynamoDB and RDS. You know, A common pattern I've seen is using DynamoDB for your operational database and then using streams to connect that to RDS so that your analytical data can go into a relational database um, for SQL queries later. And so this is really something that opens up the power to developers. And so thinking about how you can combine those, it's much easier when you're using an infrastructure as code approach.
0: Definitely. And on the DynamoDB side, um, speaking from my own experience, at Theodo, um, I'm responsible for coaching our developers on the serverless side and really driving serverless first architectures with our clients. Um, And when I have these conversations with our architects, um, a lot of our architects are very passionate about building in an agile way and methodology. And they love serverless because, you know, we'll be able to move so quickly. But the one point that they have a lot of, uh, that they can have reservation about is how flexible to change their DynamoDB uh, indexes are going to be. Because if there is a change in business requirement as we spoke to earlier, um, how flexible to change are the DynamoDB indexes is something that's that's, uh, a bit scary for them. Are there any strategies that you're aware of that might help reassure people who are worried about overfitting to access patterns if they're likely to change,
1: definitely. Because if you look at within Amazon, um, there are services uh, like Audible that use Dynamo DB in the background, and you know it's used extensively throughout different parts of the retail business. And those businesses have changed a lot. You know, the initial versions of their software are very different to where they are today. So they've gone through the same things where their initial requirements aren't the same as they are now. And so a lot of this comes down to you know you want to fit access patterns that that work. Um, You know, flexible for the future, but it's about understanding how you can use the GSI's properly and set up your indexing appropriately at the beginning. So, I think a great place to start looking at this, you know, there's the Rick Houlihan videos on YouTube, which. Um, you know, many of us have watched a dozen times and repeated it on slow motion so we fully get it. And there's also a fantastic resource looking at uh, Alex Debris' new book. I don't know if you've seen mm-hmm. that, but yeah, his book crazy. is just outstanding. So I, couldn't, I can't speak highly enough of that. And that speaks to some of this approach of understanding access patterns, but also retaining the flexibility to make sure that you can use it for your application as requirements change in the future.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's advice I'd also give. And Alex's book, as you mentioned, gives some really great patterns on that. Yeah. In terms of service application development as a whole, I think we're in a much nicer place than we were three years ago in terms of tooling and um, the open source side and also you know, the paid-for solutions. What would you say is the biggest tool gap at the moment uh, for people building with serverless?
1: Yeah, we get a lot of requests for, from customers about where they see things they'd like us to improve or fix or integrate. And so the approach has been over the last few years to essentially fill those gaps. You know, A couple of years ago, you saw this massive push to integrate Lambda across things like SQS and to you know, increase from five to 15 minutes and all these things that were they're technically very complicated to do, but they help bridge the gaps for developers. And so today, I think you know, the, the environment's much more mature and we see people being able to connect across services really very painlessly. But mostly now it's about this integration effort. And so when you see things like EventBridge working with SaaS partners, and you know, really a lot of that comes down from the fact that um, we need to be able to make serverless work across lots of different services, and it's not so much about just Lambda by itself. Now, from my point of view, you know, I think you can always improve tooling and IDE support and all the other things, but largely speaking, um, What we hear from customers is a lot of these things are at the point where they work well. And most of the requests we see now are around very specific things for their particular use cases.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Um, And then I guess sort of one final question. Um, You've written previously about um, serverless for call centers um, and wrote quite an interesting piece about semantic analysis Mm. on call center uh, data. The recent crisis has changed a lot about how companies are working and I've seen a lot of companies moving quickly to change their call centers or the the systems through which their employees interact with their internal systems. Mm. Have you noticed any stories about how people have used serverless to react to this?
1: Yeah, Amazon Connect is the call center system that powers Amazon.com. So it's an interesting piece of software and it's really designed for very, very high volumes. And it's fairly easy to pull into your uh, infrastructure to replace a your non-premise call center solution so Liberty Mutual had an interesting presentation of the serverless days in London last year where they talked about how quickly they implemented Amazon connect and how much money they saved so implementing it's fairly straightforward and then in terms of connecting up through infrastructure using lambda functions and um, all the voice recognition software it's not actually that difficult to do um, Randall hunt who's at aws has some really interesting stuff he's been publishing around connects that i think a lot of companies can use to be able to 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 do that more effectively i think that the biggest surprise for people is that dealing with customer calls technically is not fundamentally different to dealing with anything else so when you plug in something like connect the fact it's coming in through a 1-800 number you know from a technical perspective isn't really any different from an api call if you think about it and so once you go down this road of figuring out what you can do with your call center and how it can integrate with your data, you realize you can create a much better customer experience where you can have people call you and the system can detect who's calling and what they're likely to need. And it can reduce the load on the humans involved in your call center of picking up the calls as well. So you know, generally we've seen people who've implemented it have a lot of success, but the the real learning curve is just realizing it's not that difficult to put it in place.
0: And I was actually speaking at um uh, a serverless meetup the other week uh, that was using Amazon Chime as the, mm. the video conferencing tool and I was talking about EventBridge and about five minutes before I thought I'd have a quick look through the documentation and Amazon Chime actually uh, has EventBridge triggers which uh, I think is <laughs> a nice uh, circular nice, uh, kind of narrative there.
1: Yeah and you know so Amazon we we really do believe in dog fooding where all of the tools that we we give to clients and customers are the same things we use internally so there's there's not there's not some secret list of tools they're actually exactly the same things that you see and so chime is used extensively throughout aws and amazon and yeah i want it most of the day all day and so it does integrate pretty well with the aws architecture just because that's the sort of thing we also need to be able to use internally
0: that makes complete sense and i think that's how you uh you get to like see the same pain points as your customers we're working on um SLS DevTools, which is an open source project. And there's a few guys at Theodore working on it at the minute, as well as some open source contributors. But we're getting all of our projects. Uh, well, partly we, some projects were using it when it was internal anyway, but we're pushing for more projects to use it so we can get that direct customer feedback from within our own company. Because I think that's there's, nothing, uh, there's not much of a substitute from actually having a call or meeting with somebody who's having an issue with a tool, um, because I think that's how you really understand what's missing and maybe the root cause of their issue.
1: Yeah that's that's exactly how we do things here so you know since I joined AWS a year ago one of the things that you hear about externally but I can tell you from the inside is absolutely true is that everything we build comes from what customers are telling us they want and so you meet product managers and product teams And the first question they all ask DAs is, you know, what are you seeing with customers? What are people wanting to do? So we build things and we get to the state where we don't make assumptions about what people want. We, We build versions and then we put them out to customers and then say, you know, what would you like to see next? And all the iterations that come out of that are a result of what customers are requesting from us. So, you know, whenever I meet people, uh, and you know, developers, who I'm trying to help in the public. I'm always saying to them, you know, don't be afraid of telling us when you want something, because I'm in a good position to tell product teams what those things are. But it's the only way the products get better if you tell us you know what you think is missing and what can be improved. You know, we're more than happy to hear about it.
0: Yeah, no, I've been really impressed about how product teams will actually reach out to developers. Like we've had a couple of teams at CEDO talking to to various different product teams at AWS, uh, for instance, EventBridge, and uh, it's. It's great, I think, to be involved in in helping to define what the upcoming features are, and I think it really helps also on the open source side give give uh, give developers some some vision on what sort of tooling is going to be needed.
1: Uh, yeah, and it, it really is just the only way that you can make a product fit well for your customer base because you know, certainly my put on my product manager hat from my previous roles, you think you know what customers want up front from day one. But fundamentally there's this there's this journey you both go through. As people start experimenting with your service or your product, they realize that they need more things or different things. And so it really is much more of an iterative journey than they plan everything up front. But you know, many many custom, many, many companies, I think, you know, really listening to what their users and their customers want could really help them take their products and their services to the next level.
0: Yeah, definitely. And um, just to conclude, I think everyone's been really enjoying your serverless coffee breaks. So thank you so much for running those. Oh, who's, good. Uh, who's on the upcoming one.
1: So tomorrow I've got a uh, Ran ribbon from Epsilon. So, I'm uh, really excited to talk to Rand because you know, Epsilon has been doing great work in the observability space for quite a long time now. And you know, the way they fit with service is really important. We see a lot of customers using their services. So I've got a long, long list of questions for him. But you know we've had a lot of good discussions with various people throughout the various coffee breaks. And it's been exciting to see people who have self-taught themselves solutions like Emily Shea did or you talk to people about how the serverless hero program is developed, like with Rebecca Marshburn. But there's so many great people in the community who are talking to us about different things. You know, hopefully we can keep the coffee breaks alive and well for months to come.
0: Yeah, I think you've got a big backlog. It's um, quite a few people, uh, yeah. <laughs> and where can people find out more about that? OK,
1: so that's on Twitter. If you go to my Twitter account, which is J-B-E-S-W, we broadcast through Periscope. And so it's live on, tw- on Twitter on Fridays at 12 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. But if that doesn't fit your time zone, you can also fit uh, see the archives on YouTube. We have a new AWS serverless channel where we put all of our content and there's a serverless coffee breaks playlist on the YouTube channel.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time, James, and I'll definitely be tuning in for the coffee tomorrow.
1: Great. Well, thanks so much for having me here. It's been
0: great. Thanks. Well, that brings us to the end of our conversation with James. And thank you so much, James, for taking the time to speak with us today. If you want to hear more and find more content from Serverless Transformation, go to serverless-transformation.com, search us on Spotify and on Twitter, and also look at SLS DevTools, an open source project trying to improve the developer experience of working with serverless directly in the terminal. Thank you so much and enjoy your day.